welcome to the Parkview podcast. I'm Paul Hunk, investment analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Osama Himani, CIO of the firm. For this podcast, we are aiming to provide our clients a series of short-form discussions on topics that we are finding interesting at the moment at the firm. We hope that we will be able to invite guests for future episodes that will provide their valuable insights on the main topics discussed during the show. If you have any suggestions on areas of interest or on topics you think we should discuss, please reach out to us and we will gladly consider them for a later episode. In today's episode, we'll be going through our Investment Committee's 2020 outlook whilst revisiting some of the major market events and trends that we saw in 2019. So, Osama, 2019 was an unusual year, all things considered, for investors. We saw fantastic returns across most of the major indices, but at the same time, we saw worsening macroeconomic conditions. What is your overall assessment of the year? Thank you, Paul. You're exactly right to say that 2019 was a very unusual year. It was unusual because of the disconnect that we saw between real economic activity and and the markets. And, And also, it wasn't just the equity market performance that was unusual, but it was also the bond market performance. And there was a disconnect between the signals we were getting from fixed income markets as well as from from equity market. At the beginning of the year, there were many signals that the global economic activity will be decelerating. And indeed, all of these indicators turned out to be exactly right, and global economic activity did did decelerate. The bond market, U.S. Treasuries in particular, the yield curve inverted, which is typically a sign that happens before recession. And, And so the bond market was indeed signaling a recession. In terms of credit markets, uh, high-yield credits didn't perform as well as high-grade, so so quality bonds outperformed junk, which is, again, what you would expect in an, in an environment of decelerating economic activity. But equity markets acted as though none of this was happening, and returns were, were pretty stellar. I think in terms of economic activity and and what happened in in the real economies, whether in the U.S. or in Europe, I, you know, the deceleration was broad based. We we uh, across across all countries, but it was also sector specific in the sense that manufacturing was really the the, the focal point of the deceleration in in economic activity. Consumers uh, held up pretty well. Um, that was that was the case in in America, but also in Europe, where unemployment rates remain very low. So one story that I'm sure most people are very tired of hearing about, but that has nevertheless dominated much of the discourse over the last year, was obviously the U.S.-China trade situation. So yesterday, the much publicized Phase One deal was signed rather ceremoniously. Um, and just given the fact that the original tariffs remain in place, do you think this particular agreement will have much effect on the outlook and relations between the countries moving forward? The trade deal is actually important in a lot of ways because one of the main uh, sources of uncertainty uh, in the global economy has been has been trade tensions between the U.S. and China, which also spilled over to to Europe and and other countries as as companies try to figure out how to arrange their supply chains. So so the deal is really important in reducing uncertainty about things going forward. Unfortunately, the deal is a trade truce. It is not a permanent peace. And I say that because because what the deal does do is stop the escalation of the trade war between China and the U.S. It does not, however, roll back 
existing uh, the, the new tariffs that were introduced over the course of the year from from 2018 to end of 2019. So so it is you know it's 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 half a um, it's it's not a whole loaf it's half a loaf, um, but it is but you know it, it does send, have an important signaling mechanism. Now, what does what's the, what does the trade deal really achieve? I mean, it addresses issues of intellectual property, tech transfer, food and agriculture, uh, financial services. All of these areas are actually quite important. Um, and and uh, in particular, I would say on financial services, it reduces, it maintains uh, uh, the 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 integration of the ch- Chinese and U.S. financial markets. And and this is really quite critical at a time when we see that in manufacturing, the the uh, manufacturing supply chains might be are likely to be moving apart. The the trade deal also. Um, uh, um, commits China to increase its purchases of some U.S. goods by $200 billion, more above the 2017 level, which is the level that was set. Um, this is this is the part of the trade deal that's really pretty pretty uh, ironic in a way, because one of the main gripes of the U.S. Uh, regarding China is is that China has. Uh, too much influence uh, on its own economy in terms of state-owned enterprises, and here we have the U.S. asking China to be even more more interventionist. One little noticed part of the trade deal, which could potentially have implications in the future, is what happened with respect to the currency provisions under the deal. You will recall that that at some point in the in last August, the U.S. Treasury designated China. As a currency manipulator, which is which was a first step towards giving the U.S. a a, a uh, an opportunity to impose countervailing tariffs against China for its currency manipulation. Now, now currency manipulation it's it's really quite a complex issue. The definition, but but the U.S. Trade Representative Office does not have the remit, the legal ability to impose such tariffs and the Department of Commerce to impose such tariffs without resort to Congress. So, so this is part of the, the threat that came for, from Trump that for which he didn't have full authority to do without congressional approval. But by China agreeing to integrate these currency provisions in the trade deal, they've effectively brought it to under a, a, an agreement on, on which Trump has has more power. So in a way, the the um, uh, this might may sound a bit obscure, but but what the deal has done is effectively give Trump more more power in the future in potentially imposing tariffs against China. So it was a pretty interesting year in emerging markets, where fallouts in Argentina and Lebanon attracted much of the news focus, but developments in India and Brazil were definitely worth noting. What is your take on these two markets going forward into 2020? Indeed, uh, Argentina and, and Lebanon attracted a lot of the headlines because disasters always attract headlines. And, and you know, you have in, in investments, uh, you know, some fund managers like to talk about disaster tourism, which is effectively when when fund managers uh, suddenly become distressed managers or are attracted to the potential returns of a distressed situation, even when, when they don't necessarily have the skill set uh, to do so. But, but that aside, I think um, 
Argentina and Lebanon are very special cases. And the big story is indeed uh, Brazil, where, where Brazil and India. Brazilian reforms were challenging because and have been challenging for some time because the Brazilian constitution heavily constrains what the government can and can't do in terms of um, in, in terms of its fiscal policy. Um, this is because there are too many um, too many expenses, particularly with respect to pensions, with respect to uh, um, um, minimum wages, that 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 the that are mandated by the constitution and and require constitutional reforms to pass. So the fact that Brazil has been able to pass pension reforms um, is is actually a very big step. It's not as big and deep as a lot of economists would have liked to see, i.e. it is not a reform that is puts Brazil firmly on on the track to uh, to back to investment grade in terms of its debt and fiscal dynamics, but it's it's a very very important step in that direction. The second thing that Brazil has done is started the privatization program, and and the Brazilian state does own a lot of assets. Perhaps they're not worth as much as as the finance ministry in Brazil likes to say they are worth, but but the Brazilian state does have a lot of assets, whose Privatization can help reduce the the, um, the debt burden significantly. What has happened in Brazil, I think the real story in Brazil, is that this is the first time Brazil has a right of center um, uh, government uh, that is elected in, in democratically. Since, since democracy has started in Brazil, Every government has been left of center, and this is the first time Brazil elects right of center. So it is a, a seismic change in the politics of, of the country. India wasn't the big success story of, of the year. It was the exact opposite. It was, it was the big disappointment of 2019. When Modi was first elected, he enacted a, a, a number of very, very important reforms that, that addressed some of the inefficiencies in India. These included the, the reform to the sales tax, reform to the bankruptcy code, because, because this is important given the number of uh, non-performing loans in the banking system. He introduced a program of demonetization, which, which helps avoid tax evasion. So all of these things were, were actually important in terms of improving efficiency uh, in, in, the, in the country. Unfortunately, they were introduced in a way that was a bit abrupt and, and uh, arguably disruptive economic activity. But, but nonetheless, uh, uh, you know, I think investors waited expecting results. Um, however, um, the Modi government is also a bit populist, and and they they imposed, uh, you know, they put pressure on the central bank to to ease monetary policy more than than was likely prudent, and as a result, inflation in in India has has picked up. And because last year was an election year, fiscal policy was also um, uh, quite loose. As a result of all of this, India is actually struggling right now. Growth has decelerated quite significantly. The reforms have not yielded the efficiencies fully that, that, that people were expecting. Um, and so growth is, is sustained by government spending.
this isn't good because because India has needs to maintain a certain level of economic growth in order to absorb all of the entrance to the labor market. So so while you know theoretically India is doing fine, growing by five percent, five percent or six percent is not enough to arrest the rise in the unemployment rate. And, and, and what's worrying, it's not only that the unemployment rate is rising, but it's rising at a time when the labor participation rate is dropping. So, so people are being discouraged from even seeking jobs. They're dropping out of the labor market and, and unemployment is increasing. So after the very evident slowing in global macro conditions that we saw in late 2018 and for much of 2019, why do you think the economy has not slipped into a recession as of yet? That's a very good question. Um, I think um, I think there there are two reasons for that. The first was monetary policy. Uh, the Fed uh, changed course in monetary policy at a very very um, early stage. Um, arguably, the Fed had been tightening in in 2018, and then then paused and switched gears from a point when monetary policy was neutral. And monetary policy moving into, into an expansionary phase now is much more potent than, mon- than monetary policy was 10 years ago. The reason for that is because unlike the period in 2010 or 2011 when banks had weak balance sheet and needed to, um, needed to improve their capital adequacy ratios and were therefore not extending credit, uh, banks are in a very good position now. So, so monetary loosening under the current conditions enables credit creation that's very rapid and, and, and rapid growth in the money supply. So we're seeing rapid growth in the money supply at levels we haven't seen in, in quite some time. That's, that's one reason. The second reason is the nature of the slowdown. The slowdown was, was mostly in the manufacturing and industrial sectors. Um, there were some sector-specific issues. For example, the auto industry is going through some big seismic changes. The tariffs have have disrupted certain supply chains. But but you know, all of the bad news seems to have been concentrated in mostly in manufacturing. And while this did spill over in some sectors, it wasn't enough. And the reason it wasn't enough is perhaps because manufacturing is far less labor intensive than it used to be. And consequently the the recession that we've seen in some industries has not has not impacted employment at the national level and the consumers remain in 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 very good shape and as long as consumers are in good shape then then the economy held up pretty well so taking this all into account and looking forwards what is the firm's medium term outlook and how is it uh, positioned for 2020 looking at the year ahead um, I think we need to uh, we, we need to think of the catalysts for growth, and the catalysts for growth I, I think are very few. We see more downside risks than upside potential. The 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 impact of of the tax cuts that that Trump introduced when he was first elected was was behind us. So that impact on earnings is is gone. Um, uh, we you know the trade trade tensions have have subsided but but they've subsided between china and the and and the um and the us but they haven't really subsided globally let's not forget that 
that Brexit is going to happen in January and the UK and Europe, for example, don't have a trade agreement. So, so trade issues will be um, will continue to weigh on the outlook in 2020. Um, there are also potentially disputes arising between between China and the EU on on trade issues. So, so what started between the US and China has has actually spread right now. And so trade disputes are not are are, are not going to be behind us. And so with with um, you know more downside risks than upside potential, we have to look at the stance of policies and and you know can can fiscal and monetary policies, whether in the US or in Europe, actually uh, uh, be be in a position to to um, to add an impetus to growth, or or are they likely to be a drag on growth or or neutral? I think in the case of the U.S., monetary policy is stimulative enough. Uh, fiscal policy, however, doesn't have any room to be more expansionary, and and so and so we're unlikely to see a further push from emanating from the U.S. economy, and hence growth will be at or slightly below potential, which in our estimate is just shy of of 2%. In Europe, given the risks of Brexit and given the very strongly entrenched fiscal policy discipline in Germany and elsewhere, we're also unlikely to see um, stimulative fiscal policies, and therefore growth is likely to remain below potential, which you know, in the case of Germany, we think is below 1%. So in advanced economies, growth is likely to remain anemic. And and this is happening at a time when PE multiples have already risen quite a bit. I mean, last year, performance can be explained largely by the the, the rise in PE, uh, PE ratios rather than, than any growth in earnings. If we look forward, how are investor investment returns happening they're happening either because multiples change because you you know people are willing to pay more or less in terms of pe for for equities they they happen because of earnings growth and they happen because of dividends and if economic growth is likely to remain anemic earnings growth is likely to be modest at best and with pe ratios having already risen i think the market will be uh, will struggle this year in a way that that it didn't last year. So, from an investment strategy perspective, I think I think we 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 are going to remain cautious this year. I think, given that the recession risks have 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 declined, you know, we we would potentially be looking at at adding in terms of risk assets if if and when valuations become more attractive, given where they are today, it's hard to make that case. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients at Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.